So who is the church? That is a lot better question for us to be asking than where do you go to church? Because as we've talked all series long, the church isn't a place, it's a people. We are the church. Those who know Jesus as Savior, those who have been adopted into God's family, we are the church. And so in this series, what we've been doing is looking at pictures inside of Scripture to help us better understand that to help us better understand uh, who we are, and more importantly, how we are to live. If the church is a people, what does that mean? What does it mean for how we go about our day, how we live out our lives? So that's what we're trying to do in this series, is get a better idea of that. Who is the church, and what does that mean for us? And so far, in the last two weeks, we have seen uh, that the church uh, are foreigners. That is, that we are living in a land that is not our home. This world is temporary. Our home is in heaven. So we are foreigners here. Uh, and then last week, we saw that we are ambassadors. As foreigners living in this land, uh, we are not just here with no purpose or no mission. We are ambassadors who are carrying out the ministry and mission of reconciliation from our true king. Well, this week, we're going to move forward in answering that question, who is the church, and go to kind of a different illustration. The, the last couple have been, you know, we're foreigners, and as foreigners, we're ambassadors. But today, we're going to look at the words of Jesus himself, and we're going to see that Jesus calls his followers, the church, he's going to call us salt and light. What does that mean? It means that as salt and light, we bear witness to our king and our country through our character and our actions. So we're going to jump right in today to the words of Jesus found in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, where he brings out this very familiar passage of calling his followers salt and light. So join me, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Now, uh, chances are, if you've grown up in church, around church, that you've heard that passage before, right? That we are called to be salt and light. Uh, But I think it's going to be helpful for us today to take just a few minutes and try to understand uh, the implications of Jesus's illustration here. What does it mean for us to be salt and light? What does that illustration tell us about who we are as the church and our purpose for how we're to live? So let's just kind of take our time today digging into that. First of all, what is our purpose as salt. If if he says, you are the salt of the earth, you being plural, you my followers, you're the salt of the earth, what does that mean? Well, I, I think it speaks to the purpose of the church to preserve. Uh, of the numerous things which Jesus could have had in mind when he said, you are the salt of the earth, uh, in Jesus's day, the primary function of salt was its use as a preservative for food right? They didn't have electricity, so they didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have ice boxes. They used salt to preserve meat. And so probably that is most what Jesus and his followers had in mind here uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. And so what Jesus is doing is he is calling his disciples to be preservatives in the world. We are to preserve the values, the truths, and the culture of his kingdom 
as they exist in the world today. Uh, what that means is that in the world today and in the world at any time, that there exists culture that in some ways are apart from the kingdom and in some ways align with the kingdom. And I think this is true of every culture from every period in time. Some have more closely aligned to the kingdom. Some have more closely opposed the kingdom. But every culture has pieces that align with the kingdom and oppose the kingdom. And Jesus says, as salt, we are to preserve those aspects that align with the kingdom. That means that the church is to work to arrest corruption, to prevent moral decay, and to affirm basic biblical values in our world. But then Jesus says, but if the salty, uh, if the salt loses its saltiness, he says, uh, other translations say lose its taste, how can it be made salty again? Well, what's interesting here is that it has nothing to do in the original language with taste or, or with saltiness. Literally, that phrase, lose its taste, lose its saltiness, literally means to become foolish, maybe become useless. The idea here is that the salt doesn't lose what makes it salt. Salt's always going to be salt. The idea here is that salt loses its distinctiveness that makes it effective. And I'm not sure this is the picture that Jesus had in mind when he's saying this, but in my mind, you know, I'm thinking of somebody that has a bag of salt in Jesus's day, and when getting ready to rub it on some meat to preserve that meat, they drop some of that salt into the sand. And when the salt mixes with the sand, the salt's not effective anymore. There's too much impurity in it. There's too much salt in it. Uh, another thing Pastor AJ brought to the table in our meeting this week when we're talking about this idea is that back in this day, uh, pure salt was hard to come by. And much of the salt that they farmed had inherent impurities in it. And it was a whole lot easier uh, as the salt was to break down to lose the salt element and keep the impurities. Now, I think the, the picture uh, that Jesus has in mind for the church, though, is that as the church, it's important we don't allow ourselves to become deluded or defiled by the world. Because when we lose that which makes us distinctive as God's people, distinctive as the church, we lose our ability to preserve the truths, of the, uh, the truths and the culture of the kingdom here in this world. Right, That when we so intermix, let's just say, with the sand, we cease to become effective. So our purpose as salt is to preserve, but I'd go further and say our purpose as salt is to enhance. Now, the primary function of salt today, right, is to enhance the flavor of food. We have refrigerators and freezers. And though this enhancing element of salt was not a primary function of salt in Jesus' day, it was far too valuable to just be sprinkled on food, I think it's fair to say they were aware of this purpose of salt, and some very wealthy people did use it as such. It was still a function. And what does that mean for us? I think what it means is though this world is not our home, we still work to enhance the world while we're here, right? We don't just fight against the evil, but we seek to enhance the good. Uh, look at this passage from Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 7. This is after the nation of Israel has been sent into exile for their rebellion and abandonment of the true God. And Jeremiah, speaking on behalf of the Lord, prophesies to those people who are moving into exile. This is what he says. 
He says, uh, verse 4, Jeremiah 29, verse 4, This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourself and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. And then he says in verse 7, Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. So even as exiles in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel in Babylon was not to work for the destruction of Babylon. They were to work for the well-being of Babylon. That wasn't their home. They had a home they were going to, but while they were there, they were to work to bless the people in the city in which they lived. And so I think it's important for us to remember that as the church today, we're not just meant to preserve kingdom culture from moral decay, but we are to positively create and shape culture in such a way that it leads to human flourishing. That word, phrase, human flourishing, is kind of a weird phrase. I heard it uh, from Dr. Albert Moeller, who is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, in speaking to a group of students, this is what Dr. Moeller says about human flourishing that I think really hits the heart of what it means to be an enhancement here on earth. This is what he says. He says, Our common hope is to see humanity flourish. In the book of Revelation, we find the letter from the Lord Jesus Christ to the church at Sardis. He commands that church to strengthen the things that remain. And those words certainly fit the challenges of our own culture and our own times. Without hesitation, we do our best to strengthen the things that allow and provide for human flourishing, that bear witness to human dignity, and that undergird human rights. We bear witness to the truth that these good things are not our own achievement or the result of social experimentation, but are instead gifts of a sovereign and loving God who brings himself glory and blesses his human creatures with these good gifts. The task of those now living is to defend these truths in time of danger. And defend them we must and we will, but we are not called merely to defend them, listen to this, but to fulfill them and to receive them and to find our joy in them. This means that our task is not only to defend marriage, but to live that commitment before a watching world. Our task is not only to point to the dignity due every member of the human family at every stage of development, but to defend the defenseless and to work for the affirmation of this dignity in everyone, from the elderly to the infirm to the child with Down syndrome. We are not only called to defend human rights, but to contend for them and to insist that these rights are non-negotiable only because our Creator endowed us with these rights and allows no negotiation. So it's not just enough, right, that we fight to hold on to truths that we see it, but we work to enhance them, to, to bring them into the cultural center of the world. And I think, you know, here's the truth, that some followers of Jesus have allowed political commentators to hijack this idea to shade it with negativity and really create fear and suspicion around the idea of social justice. And the idea of social justice warrior has become some hidden boogeyman in the evangelical church today. But look, we can't allow this to continue. God himself is the bringer of justice. And his heart for justice cries out on every page, page after page in the Old and New Testaments. And while we wait for Jesus to come and completely and finally bring his kingdom in fullness here on earth, 
We are to work wherever and however we can to pull back the veil of decay and darkness in this world and show the work of the kingdom here and now. We enhance the world that we live in. Now, I think it's also important for us to remember that salt and light are only effective if they are both distinct from and yet integrated into what they are working to change. Right? Salt has to be different from the meat to preserve it, but you've got to rub the salt in the meat. Uh, that light, which we're going to see in just a second, uh, has to be distinct from the darkness, but light does no good in a fully lit room. Right? Uh, and, and so what that means for us is that we are not called to retreat into isolation, nor are we called to fully conform to this world. Many preachers have said over the years that the Christian is to be in the world but not of the world. So let, let's keep moving. What is our purpose as light? Well, I think our purpose as light is pretty straightforward. It is to drive away darkness. Now, what is darkness? Uh, darkness is interesting because darkness really doesn't exist. Uh, darkness isn't the presence of anything. Darkness is the absence of light. And so here's the good news. That means that the greater the darkness, the more important, and honestly, the more effective, even the smallest amount of light becomes. And so in a world that we're living in today where you say, man, we are fighting to preserve and enhance every piece of the kingdom we can because we feel like our world may be falling apart at the seams, let me encourage you that the darker the world gets, the more your light shines. Well, what is that light? We've heard of this little light of mine. What is it? Well, Jesus makes clear that it is our good works that are light to the world. Our light, our good works, is really a common grace to all those around us, those saved and unsaved. Now, that, that phrase, common grace, it may be unfamiliar to you. That's totally fine. Really, when we say common grace, what we really mean is uh, that common grace is God's kindness to all people during their time on earth, regardless of their present standing before them, uh, before him. If they're saved, if they're not saved, if they're declared righteous, if they're living in self-righteousness, God's common grace is his goodness to all people while they're here on earth. That means rain, medicine, a good meal with friends. These are all common graces given to all by a good God. And so our good works as the church, the light of the world, are some more of that common grace that he has bestowed to all to display his goodness. Um, maybe we would put it like this. Our good works... Our light is part of God's plan to bless all and to save some. What do we mean by that? What do I mean by that? Well, as we at the orchard work to serve our communities in however we can, specifically lately through hurricane relief, we do so in hopes that it would open up doors for us to share the gospel and see people come to faith. We do so in hopes that people who have been hurt by the church would see the church in a new light and come back to Jesus again. But we do it in the hopes that those things are happen, will happen, not for the purpose that those things will happen. And, and this is a big distinction. Because when we do our good works for the purpose of people being saved, 
what we're really doing is using good works as bait and putting a hook in them. Um, Pastor Eddie, when he founded the orchard, has done a great job of talking about that we want to be a church with no hooks. We want to love people because we're called to love people. We want to serve people because we're called to serve people. We want to work for the good of the city because we're called to work for the good of the city, not only so that people will be saved. Because when that happens, and that's the purpose behind all the good stuff we do, when we're not seeing people being saved left and right, eventually we're going to stop doing those things. And if you don't think that's true, there's churches on every street corner that validate that truth. But here's what I want to tell you. We do this in hopes that our good works would lead people to faith in Jesus. But we do it ultimately because that's what God has called us to do as the light of the world. And it's going to be up to him to use our good works to save those whom he pleases. We, we do what we do without hooks. And we understand and pray that God might use it as a means by which he brings some to faith. So as salt, we preserve and enhance. As light, we drive out darkness. But I think one of the most overlooked parts of the salt and light discourse here is the context that is set by the preceding verses. Uh, So if you got your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, let's just back up two verses. We started at verse 13. Let's go back to verse 11. This is right after the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are, that, that section. And then in Matthew 5, verse 11, Jesus says this. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that's how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Um, Now, that may seem disconnected from you are the salt of the earth, but it's really not. We know this. Uh, We know that these two passages are connected. These two small sections are connected in a couple of ways. Number one, because when Jesus preached this sermon the first time, he didn't say, okay, moving on. Uh, If you look at the original gospel of Matthew, there weren't chapters or verses. This was one continuous thought. But maybe even more persuasive than that is in in verses 1 through uh, 3 through 10, Jesus says, Blessed are the uh, poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. And then after this, in verse 17, Jesus says, Now, don't think that I, and he puts the focus on him, but here in this section starting in verse 11, all the way going to the end of the salt and light discourse, Jesus uses the second person you. So this is a practical application, right? That's, that's the point of these two things being connected. Um, and the point for us is that when we live as salt and light, it's not going to be easy. And, and it was never meant to be. You know, sometimes I think that we feel like when we are salt and we are light, that everybody ought to throw a parade and celebrate us and let's get out of cake. And, and, and the truth is that that's just not going to happen. It's hard to live as salt and light. And when we do live as salt and light, uh, it's going to invariably put us at odds with others. We're going to rub against them. Um, And I think in many ways we've missed this because we've lived in a country that, uh, for the most part, has shared our same Judeo-Christian worldview and moral ethic. But this is changing rapidly, right? The the world no longer holds that, and it's it's moving quickly. However, I think it's important for us to just remember a couple things to to keep them in mind. Um, When I say that the world's changing and we're going to be in opposition with others, we need to realize that we're going to be at odds with those who think that we are too conservative and those who think we are too liberal. Like we're going to face opposition 
from both sides of the political aisle. And I'll be very clear here that both the Republican Party and Democratic Party today, uh, both have places where they oppose biblical values. And I think that we miss that when we read the New Testament because we've kind of, in 2,000 years since, lumped the Pharisees and the Sadducees together as one group, but they weren't even close to that. Matter of fact, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were as far apart as the Republicans and Democrats are today. So when we face opposition, when we face persecution, it's going to come from both sides of the aisle, so to speak. Um, I think the other thing that we have to remember is that we're not called to seek after persecution as a badge of honor. Uh, and I've seen this, I think, in the church uh, as, as of late, you know, where we like to talk about how, well, we stand for Jesus and that's why everybody hates us. And, and I'm not saying that's not true. Jesus said persecution will come. He just says we shouldn't chase after persecution. Besides that, not every instance of somebody being mean to you is really persecution. I mean, just to be honest with you, sometimes you deserve it when people are mean to you. It's because you were a jerk to them. It's because you went looking for a fight. Um, sometimes when people are mean to you, they're not really being that mean. You're just overly sensitive. I mean, honestly, sometimes we just need thicker skin. Uh, and then sometimes when people are mean to you, it's not persecution. They're just being a jerk, you know? They're in a bad mood. They're having a bad day. Sometimes that's just how people are. Anybody who has ever experienced real persecution is not going to go chasing after it. I think Christians in other parts of the world and Christians throughout history would tell us that. You're going to experience it. You just ain't got to chase after it. So, how then should we live? What does it mean for us to live like and look like salt and light as the church? Two, two things really quick. Uh, the first one, as salt and light, we are to seek to affirm and advocate for kingdom values wherever we find them. And I think the flip side of that is this also means we may seek to oppose attacks on those values wherever and whenever we can. So we fight for them and we fight the things that fight against the things that attack them. However, let me say this, lest our minds go places that are entirely unhelpful, you need to hear me. These attacks on biblical values come from both sides of the aisle. They come from Democrats and Republicans. And more than that, this is not a call for us to, believe, to become political advocates. Being salt and light has nothing to do with politics. It has nothing to do with you being a political activist. We are called to be ambassadors, not for the elephant or the donkey. We are called to be ambassadors for the lion who is the lamb. We are witnesses to him. He's the only platform that we push. And the second thing, what does it mean to be salt and light? It means that we seek to bless others here and now. We are to be busy about that work. I mean, honestly, today, uh, the church is cast in a very negative light. People do not think well of the church. Would you join me in working to change that by being a good neighbor, by loving our communities, by being light in a very dark world? And as we do that, let's remind our communities through our good works just how dark the world would be if the light of the church was gone. Let's promote and push and advocate for biblical values. And let's 
bless others here and now. Who is the church? We are salt and we are light. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for the time that you've given us today to look to your word. And I pray just as simply as I can that above all else, you would help us to see ourselves differently. That as we understand what it means to be salt and light, that we would see ourselves that way. And that as we see ourselves that way, that we would begin to live that way, preserving the truth uh, of your kingdom that we see in this world and seeking to drive out darkness through our good works and blessing those around us. And God, we know that we're going to do this because you've called us to it. But we pray that as we do it, that you would use it to save some. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.